Phantasm, Chevrolet, and this is Criminal Vortex. Uh, that's right. Uh, it's just me today. Sumana couldn't make it because uh, she's got a few things going on and she's out of station at the moment. Uh, honestly, both of us have a lot of things going on at the moment with college and stuff. It's pretty hectic, but uh, we're trying. We're doing our best uh, to get content out there for you guys. Uh, and I'm just genuinely, genuinely so um, happy. You guys have been so patient with us uh, and just, wow, thank you, because we've been missing a lot of weeks uh, and it's really frustrating for me and for Sumana as well, because um, we really want to be making content every single week, editing and getting stuff out there, researching and stuff, but it's just not been possible lately. But you know what? Because you guys have been so sweet, we are giving you two episodes this week to make up for the last uh, week. Um, so yeah, uh, today's case is going to be stomach churning, to say the least, because mm, you will, you will, uh, I mean, your skin will crawl, literally, because it is insane. And uh, the murder isn't even the worst part. I mean, it is a pretty bad, gruesome murder. But the thing that bothers me the most is that this guy is still out there. Just like Sachal Barui, this guy is still out there. For I mean, I will get into why this guy is out there. But it's so frust it was really frustrating um, researching this case. Because I've heard this case earlier too, like on different platforms by different people. And it was really intriguing as to why is this guy out there? But uh, before we get into this very, very horrific case, uh, I just wanted to, uh, what do you say, address a few things here. Uh, if you guys, I mean, wherever you guys are listening to our podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening and, you know, going on our artwork, clicking, I mean, going on the podcast name, and clicking an episode and listening to my voice. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much means a lot and uh just you know spread the word because we're such a tiny podcast little tiny small uh and honestly we can't afford any big marketing or whatever just we completely rely on you to get the word out there so if you like us please go tell your friends family everybody just shout on top of your lungs uh also if i mean whenever you guys are listening spotify apple breaker google podcast whatever if there's a follow button please click it if there's a subscribe button please click it because that makes a huge huge difference uh, obviously it makes a huge difference to us but you would know when we're getting an episode out so because <laughs> we've been all over the place lately uh but yeah do that and um right we have social media that we will promote because there are more of you listening to us than there are people on our Instagram. What is this? <laughs> Go follow us there to see the faces behind the people that we talk about. Um, we post all the pictures there of these horrific, horrific murderers and the victims. Uh, so to give you a nice, uh, not nice, <laughs> uh, a vivid image of what we're talking about, uh, head on over to our Instagram and hit the follow button because, like, why not? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, if you have any 
case suggestions, any feedback, uh, or just in general, you want to tell us that, you know, you heard an episode, you really liked it or whatever, uh, just go there and DM us. Honestly, it means so much to us when we get we have when we have people coming up to us and saying that they heard this episode and they really liked it uh this i don't know it's really nice to have a connect with you guys uh but yeah uh don't be creepy just mm, that's not that's not nice anyways <laughs> let's get into today's case necrophile i say sagawa now he is responsible for the murder of René Hartwald in Paris in the year 1981. Now, this is 40 years ago in France, a country that I adore and whose language I adore. Now, um, you know what? Let's go to right after, not exactly right after, but a few days after the murder. Uh, in a park called Bois de Boulogne, which is still there, and I think it's a very big park in Paris. Middle-aged couple was taking uh, a walk in the warm summer night on the 13th June 1981. It was a Saturday. Uh, as they strolled, they noticed a city taxi pull into a side road up ahead. Out hopped a young Asian-looking gentleman. The couple would later describe the man as being very small and delicately built. Now, what really caught their attention for like a bit was that this guy was struggling to pull two large suitcases from the boot of the taxi. Now, after paying the driver, he proceeded to place the apparently heavy cases onto a small trolley, which he then began to drag into the park. Now, the couple walked on because it didn't really seem that weird to them because like people do really weird things. But then the tiny man with the suitcases did something to further draw their attention. They slowed their pace and watched as he sharply veered across a grass bush and headed towards the edge of the lake. Clearly, he intended to deposit his baggage into the water. Now, just then, the man turned, glanced around him and spied his small and unexpected audience. The couple's presence appeared to distract him from his mission. He panicked and very stupidly slid both the cases under a nearby bush. That was obviously a very, very stupid thing for him to do because um, after he slides the two suitcases into the bush, uh, he turns and runs into the darkness of the park. Now, the couple that was taking a walk there and that had noticed him are intrigued by his behavior and they make their way towards the bush to find out what exactly this guy was trying to dump into the lake. And honestly, bad idea. Because then they go and unzip the suitcases and <laughs> their hearts literally stop because what they find in the suitcases were um, <laughs> the dismembered remains of a human body. Now, I see... Sagawa must have known that someone could have easily seen him that night, but the Bois was close to where he lived, and he had already, already decided to dump his cases into one of his lakes. Now, running through the trees and out onto the street, the five feet, the four feet, nine inches tall figure, weighing at just six tons, dashed for home, silently cursing his laxity and undoubtedly wondering when he would be called. As it happened, the police had already been called. 
obviously. Now, upon the arrival, the officers had been primed to the shaken couple for what to expect within the case. The torso of a young woman. Now, crammed into the other uh, suitcase were the limbs and the head that went with it. After uh, they took this, the two suitcases to the mortuary, the bloody remains were removed from the tight confines and assembled on an autopsy table. Immediately noted by the pathologist was a gunshot wound in the nape of the victim's torn neck, sufficient to have caused her death. Now, there was something else about this dismembered body that merited instant note. Portions of its flesh were missing. Thick slices had been cut from the butt and the thighs. The tip of the nose had also been removed, which was pretty interesting. Because why the tip of the nose? Now, you can actually find pictures of this on the internet out there. I did not go looking for it because it's around 1am that I'm recording. I do not need nightmares. I'm already going to have nightmares because I'm recording this so late at night. But I would suggest not to because why would you want to scar yourself? But you know what? It's out there. Just letting you know. Now, uh, let's go a little back in time and really take a look at this guy's childhood. Issei Sagawa was born on the 26th of April, 1949 in Kobe to wealthy parents. Sagawa's father, Akira Sagawa, was a businessman who served as president of Kurita Water Industries. And his father had been an editor for the Asahi Shimbun. Sagawa was actually born prematurely and reportedly was small enough that he could fit in the palm of his father's hand. And immediately after he was born, he developed quite a few, uh, a couple of diseases, um, for, out of which one was enteritis, which is a disease of the small intestine. But Sagawa eventually recovered after several injections of potassium and calcium and saline. Now, Sagawa's fragile um, health and introverted personality led him to developing a strong sense of interest in literature. He attended schools in Kamakura, uh, in Kamakura, where he first experienced cannibalistic desires while in the third grade, which, um, sorry, while in the first grade, that's even worse. In a 2011 interview with Weiss, Sagawa re reported that as a youth, he partook in bestiality with his dog and experienced cannibalistic desires for women. <clears throat> Sagawa attended Wako University and completed a master's degree in English, uh, in English literature at the Kwase uh, Gakuin University. At the age of 24, while attending Wako University in Tokyo, Sagawa followed a tall German woman home, then broke into her apartment while she was sleeping. Sagawa's intent was to cannibalize her by slicing part of her butt and sneaking away with a small part of her flesh. But she awoke and Sagawa claims pushed him to the ground. Sagawa was then captured by the police and charged with attempted rape and did not confess his true intentions to the authorities. Because <laughs> that probably would have been worse. Sagawa's... Uh, yeah, that's messed up. That That's worse, but... Sagawa's charges of attempted rape were dropped when his father paid a settlement to the victim. Which is not the first time that's gonna happen. It's gonna happen again. So, it's gonna happen again and you will be very frustrated, let me tell you. So, in 1977, at the age of 27, Sagawa moved to France to pursue a PhD in literature at the Sorbonne in Paris. Which is 
as much as I know, a pretty good university. He said that while residing in Paris, almost every night uh, he would bring home a prostitute and then try to shoot them. But for some reason, his fingers would freeze up and he couldn't pull the trigger. Now, from the moment that he met René Hartwald, uh, <laughs> Isaiah says that he was captivated. The beautiful Dutch student had come to Paris to study literature at the Sorbonne, the city's 13th century marrow of intellectual brilliance. As I said, it's a pretty good institute, pretty old. Now, unfortunately for her, it had also attracted a 32-year-old Japanese student who had arrived in town a few years earlier named Isaiah Sagawa. He lived in a rented accommodation, and it was a short distance from where he had a modern literature class at the Sorbonne School of Oriental Studies. Now, he says that he was unable to get René off his mind. Sagawa then decided to formulate a plan. Traveling home on the metro one afternoon, he was thrilled to come face to face with the girl who had so dominated his thoughts of late. It was a chance, the meeting, and Sagawa would not pass it up. Now, she recognized him from the literature class that they shared and smiled politely as he sat down beside her. The pair had their studies in common, and so Sagawa used this to strike up a casual conversation. Though fundamentally shy and retiring, he knew what he wanted. Now, for her part, the, uh, for her part she recognized that behind the retiring exterior, there was an obviously intelligent young man who possessed much wit and charm, or so she thought. I don't see it. Now, on this occasion, the dialogue went no further than mutual academic interests, and but it was an important development for Sagawa. The ice had finally been broken, and events were warming up. Now, he decided that the next time that they would meet, he would try and move things along. Now, after the lecture, it was suggested by a group that they would go out that evening for a meal at a local Greek restaurant. Sagawa could. Um, Sagawa could barely suppress her joy when Renee expressed her desire to attend. Being a part of the group, the invitation was also extended to the man with the plan. Now, the polite Sagawa had tried to ingratiate himself with his classmates. His Eastern origins interested those in the study group who were keen to sample Japanese cuisine. Now, right on, uh, now right on cue, Sagawa set a date for them all to visit his apartment where he would prepare a special meal for them. A dish called sukiyaki, which he which consisted of traditional meat and noodles. Initially, they all agreed, including in, including Rene. Now, but when it came to the evening in question, all but one of his fellow students failed to show. Sagawa had known that most people found him a bit odd, and he knew that uh, they really couldn't care less, and they probably wouldn't show up. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Rene was the only one who showed up. Now uh, they. The two of them went to his living room and conversed happily about their interests, love of music and mutual studies, with Sagawa playing up to his intellectual accomplishments. Sagawa was genuinely tempted to follow through with the plan that he had devised that very night. But he restrained himself because he was unprepared for Rene showing up alone, although he did think that um, these people, were, the group wouldn't join, but he was still pretty much unprepared. So he wanted to orchestrate another encounter with just the two of them. Now, inviting Renee to talk further about herself, the answer presented itself when she mentioned that she spoke three languages fluently, English, French, and German. Taking into account that she was short on finances, Sagawa swooped and 
expressed uh, feigned interest in learning to speak German so that he might read its original language some romantic poetry that he was fond of. If Renée was interested in tutoring him, he would pay for her services. She accepted, and upon, upon her return for the first German lesson, Sagawa thought he would strike. When Rene arrived at his flat several nights later, and psyched up, as psyched up and jittery with excitement as he was, Sagawa had last-minute reservations when he, faced, when, was, when he was faced with the reality of what he was about to do. The complex and powerful fantasy uh, that he was occupied with was all-consuming, but not yet real. He wasn't able to put his plan into action. So when Rene left that night, another opportunity, in his words, was missed. Now, he berated himself for his cowardice, and he his fear tied his dark passion in knots, and he had lost an inner battle, quote-unquote. He's very dramatic. Now, a lot of killers will claim that with some of their murders, they struggle not to murder a victim. In Sagawa's case, this was reversed. He found the question of whether or not to kill enormously taxing. He was highly agitated and wondered if he could go through with it the next time Rene visited. He knew that next time there must be no turning back. But the next time he failed again. With Rene seated comfortably on a pile of cushions on the floor, reading passages from a book to him, Sagawa moved quietly to the cupboard, got out a, two, a 22 caliber uh, rifle, and stalked up behind the distracted girl, pointed the weapon directly at the back of her neck, and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. The gun had jammed. But, sadly, Renee hadn't heard the gun jam, and she was completely oblivious. On, th on Thursday, 11th June, 1981, Sagawa again took up his rifle and crept behind a preoccupied Renee. This time, he blasted a hole in the back of the young young woman's neck and watched as she collapsed forward into the onto the living room carpet. Blood pooled around her head and he would later say that he had been so shocked at the result of his actions that he fainted. Now obviously this is all made up and <laughs> there's no way that I believe that he fainted. Now as he claims after fainting when he came to he claimed that he had been feeling quite ill and experienced a rather otherworldly quality as he gazed upon his beautiful companion laying dead, murdered by him, her blood all over his carpet. Sagawa says that he was afraid of the corpse he had created and this, and that this very real act of murder was a far cry from, what, uh, from his, all of his fantasies. Now, Sagawa next... <laughs> he says all of this, but then th his actions don't follow through because his actions aren't in agreement with the stuff that he's saying. It doesn't make sense. So Sagawa next went to his kitchen and returned with the sharpest implement he could find, an 8-inch carving knife. He then sat down beside the dead girl, slicing through what the killer would describe as thick yellow layer of fatty tissue. He reached the red meat that he craved. He then drew the knife blade back and forth, nearly severing a piece of flesh. Then he started to ingest this piece of flesh. He said that it tasted like raw tuna fish. I wouldn't know, because pure veg. <laughs> he then slid the corpse back, uh, he then slid the corpse onto its back. Sagawa then carved a section of the flesh from the upper thigh and consumed it on the spot. Sagawa then, um, 
decided to take part in necrophilia because this mutilation wasn't enough. He had to do that. Uh, momentarily, he experienced a stark veracity of what he had just done. And now there was a dead body bleeding profusely on his living room floor, which he needed to get, get rid of. Now, the next stage of the plan was addressed in his tiny bathroom. Leaving the body into the bathtub, he used the same knife which, with which excised some of Renee's flesh to begin cutting off both her legs. Next, he hacked away at both the arms and then he severed her head. I really don't want to get into all of the graphic details, but basically he dismembered her with the same knife. And throughout this nightmarish task, Sagawa kept the cold tap running to get rid of the blood. Over the next few days, he uh, tried to get rid of the body and the uh, other items that belonged to Renee. He started disposing of the uh, he started disposing of Renee's clothing. He but but thought that it was a great idea to keep her trousers, presumably as a trophy, which I find utterly disgusting. Then he purchased a couple of large suitcases and stuffed the collection of body parts inside and sealed them. Perhaps in an effort to show that nothing out untoward overshadows his, uh, overshadowed his life, he accompanied fellow students on a trip to the cinema. Presumably, his performance had been as, of, as effective as those given by the actors in the movie they watched, as all of them recalled Sagawa appearing relaxed and in a robust, good humor. Now, the same night, he returned to his studio flat to eat some more of Renee, and... Taking several cutlets from the fridge, he fried the flesh in a pan, cooking it through to his liking. He said that it tasted like veal, but uh, not, I'm not going to talk about what it tasted like. It's just too much for me. Then he, he literally, literally cooked the meat the way at least I've seen on Australia's MasterChef or whatever. Because, like, flavoring it and stuff. Oh, God. By Saturday night, Sagawa concluded that it was time to get rid of the body. The dismembered limbs and trunk were beginning to ex exude an unpleasant odor in the warm apartment. Sagawa took his taxi ride, got himself witnessed at the park, as I mentioned in the beginning, fled home and waited for his arrest. The rest of Rene was still in his refrigerator when the police came. Fortunately, finding the man responsible for this ghastly crime would not prove to be too taxing. After all, the killer himself had very stupidly <laughs> assisted the authorities by being very reckless in the disposal of his remains. Um, when I talked about in the beginning that he was witnessed by the couple, this is what we're coming back to. We're going to be talking about the investigation, sort of, I guess you can call it the investigation because it was pretty straightforward. But uh, yeah, we'll talk about that, his arrest, and yeah. So uh, the police knew that they were looking for a short man of a oriental genealogy, basically an Asian guy, who had gotten out of a taxi, uh, taxi cab. Of course, a city as cosmopolitan as Paris had more than its fair share of male residents who matched this exact description. But there was still the solid taxi lead to pursue. Now, contacting all the taxi firms in Paris to see if any of the drivers could recall picking up a small man with suitcases was a daunting prospect, but everyone was sure that it would lead them to the killer. 
Now, after a few days of systematic checking, the endeavors finally bore fruit. A driver came forward who remembered taking the fare. He had been summoned to an apartment on Rue Erlanger, uh, located within the fashionable and upscale district of Othun in the city's 16th or recent or district. On the other side, Isse Sagawa had spent the last 48 hours in a paranoid state of flight, wondering when he would be receiving the knock on his door. He knew he had crossed the line and in the most terrible way possible, and the police would be coming for him. The apartment building the taxi driver remembered collecting his fare from was an expensive but petite, just like many others in the street. And there was only one Asian man residing in the whole building. He rented one of the studio flats on the second floor. Naturally, the police went were looking to talk to him. As, they, as the suspect had access to a firearm and was capable of not only murder but extensive mutilation and dismemberment, they were understandably on their guard as they moved along the upper landing towards his front door. He was then immediately uh, arrested and then the entire court proceedings took place. As it happened before when we talked about his attempted rape and murder, uh, his father, again, provided a wealthy, uh, provided a strong lawyer for his defense. And after being held for two years awaiting trial, Sagawa was found legally insane and unfit to stand trial by the French judge, who ordered him to be held indefinitely in a mental institution. Please make it make sense. After a visit by the author Inuhiko Yomoto, Yomota, Sagawa's account of his skill was published in Japan under the title In the Fog. Now, his subsequent publicity and macabre celebrity like Sir and macabre celebrity uh, likely contributed to the French authorities' decision to deport him back to Japan, where he was immediately committed to a hospital in Tokyo. His examining, uh, his examining psych psychologists all declared him sane and found that sexual perversion was his sole motivation for murder. As the charge against him in France had been dropped, the French court documents were sealed and not released to Japanese authorities. So, Sagawa couldn't legally be detained in Japan. So, then he just... <laughs> he checks himself out of the hospital on the 12th of August, 1981. Five years. Exactly, almost exactly five years after he brutally, I mean, after he shoots this girl and mutilates her body and uh, and dismembers it, it's, it's ridiculous uh, how technicalities can let such a disgusting person out free. So, and he has been... Um, he has remained free since that day, and obviously, his continued freedom has been widely criticized. Now, between 1986 and 1997, Sagawa was frequently invited to be a guest speaker and commentator. Why? I don't understand. In 1992, he appeared in an exploitation film, um, Uwakizuma, which uh, is Unfaithful Wife or something. And... Uh, then he had he's actually written books about the murder he committed so uh, <laughs> he has also written restaurant reviews for the japanese magazines magazine spa but he can no longer find publishers for his writing and he has struggled to find employment which 
thank you very much that's the least you can do in japan i mean Nasagawa was nearly accepted by a French language school because the manager was impressed by his courage in using his real name but employees protested and he was rejected priorities where are your priorities why does it matter that he was brave enough to use his own name dude <laughs> oh god i got in 2005 sagawa's parents died and he was prevented from attending the funeral but repaid their creditors and moved into public housing he received welfare benefits for a long time now in an interview with vice magazine in 2011 he said that being forced to make a living while no- being known as a murderer and cannibal was a te- i couldn't even finish my sentence <laughs> was a terrible punishment i can't what in 2013 sagawa was hospitalized from cerebral inf- uh, infarction which permanently da- damaged his nervous system he now lives alone and needs daily assistant assistance which is provided by his younger brother or from caregivers at the time he claimed to have regretted the obsession um as i said he is pretty much a celebrity he wrote reviews for a food magazine i mean a restaurant he wrote a review for a restaurant in a magazine he's a cannibal what are you doing people oh god so there are quite a few documentaries that feature sagawa including cannibal superstar excuse me for living the cannibal that walked free interview with a cannibal caniba and quite a few more so there he he has quite a lot of uh, a very bold celebrity presence in japan and it's highly highly criticized by the young generation thankfully um so thank you for listening <laughs> for making it all the way here that is the crazy cruisin story of isei sagawa and the story of poor rene uh she did not deserve this obviously but uh, there is no sort of justice here there's no justice that's been done and it's really frustrating but Yeah that was the case i hope you guys found it as interesting as i did and as frustrating as i did cuz uh, <laughs> this case made me mad but uh yeah hope you guys enjoyed and uh, stay tuned for the next episode go follow us wherever and follow our instagram criminal vortex uh yeah that's it <laughs> at criminal vortex uh see you guys next week bye